Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. And this week, Marianne will be speaking with Optimush Saeed, who is currently studying in the LLM program at Lewis and Clark Law School, but is actually a lawyer based in Pakistan and, among other roles, is the co-founder of Charity Doings Foundation, an incredible nonprofit that aims to save all life, be it human, animal, or the environment in Pakistan. He is going to fill us in on the situation for animals in Pakistan, particularly in light of the recent devastating floods. Wow, that's intense. Yeah, I'm really glad we were able to to get him and relatively uh, put this together relatively quickly because I really wanted to talk about what's going on with those floods and just it's just such a horrifying situation and and sadly uh, something of an. Uh, indication of what's to come with climate and the fact that they're thinking about the animals as well as the people, I think is very powerful. Absolutely. Well, thank you for doing this important interview and I'm really looking forward to hearing it. I'm also so happy that you're back. So welcome back. You just had a knee replacement surgery and you were not here last week. So I just want to see how you're doing. How are you feeling? I am feeling better. And thank you for asking. And I, I I was just in shock that I missed ep- last week's episode and I missed a couple of things of rising anxieties. I, I did not think I was going to miss anything. I was so naive about, a, because it's not a huge big deal. And they replace, I mean, it's kind of a major surgery, but it's on your leg, not on your stomach or something. And, and everybody gets it. And I was naive about how it would knock me for such a loop. That is an expression, right? Knock me, knock you for a loop. I don't know, and and it really laid me low, and it just made me think like this is such a benign surgery, both because, well, you recover from it, and it's only to improve your life. It's like you know, not like you're dying or something. It's just thirty years ago you had a bad knee, you just live with a bad knee. Now you have a bad knee, they put you put a new one in, <laughs> send you home. It was such a benign thing, but I was pretty naive about how awful it would make me feel for a short period of time. And I'm not asking people to feel sorry for me. Rather, I'm I'm just kind of contemplating how there are people who are really sick and who have surgery, you know, but it isn't going to save them. And they're, they're like, there's, there's so much suffering in the world. And um, even among people that we know, and we don't think of it, and it really reminded me that, that, yeah, health is just like your mom always told you, your health is everything. And, and for people who don't have it, you know, spare a little extra thought for them this week. And I don't mean for me, because like I said, I'm, I'm well on the mend and, and it's all good. It's just such a privilege to be able to have this surgery. But, uh, wow, I felt like shit, like just totally like shit for two weeks. You're doing okay though now, right? You're kind of on, on the other side, would you say? Well, I don't know whether on the other, I mean, I'm not sure there's a side, but it's definitely, you know, I can see a little improvement every day. It still hurts, uh, but I, I don't feel as sick. I don't feel as laid low by it all. Um, you know, for a while there, I just, like, I just thought, well, they're just going to put the new knee in. The rest of me will be fine, but that's not how it worked. And I'm not the most stoic person in the world. I mean, you are, you, you plow through every, uh, 
every issue and and no matter how sick you are you always carry through i'm i'm not that person but but i'm not totally pathetic and i just couldn't do anything for 2 weeks i was like just kind of pitiful and you and your wife more took very very good care of me uh, and and i really appreciate that it was really good to have a support team i don't know what i would have done without it i don't know how people manage without it yeah well i obviously obviously it was my honor to take care of you. And I'm glad you got to take some time off because you're not very good at that. I'm sorry this is what it took, but you know, I'm going to try and I'm going to like replace something else on you the next time you need a vacation, like I don't know, your ear or something. Like just Thanks, but no thanks. So yeah, don't, yeah. Don't, I, I don't want to, but it would be nice to have a little time off. Like you are the relentless one. You are the one who loves to brag about how the fact that we've never missed a week in, in over 10 years, like in, uh, you know, just saying. I mean, we did do some, you know, best of episodes back then. Yeah, that's true. So that's true. It's not like, it, it was technically a new packaging. Anyway, it's just doing the podcast. It shouldn't, it shouldn't be that much. It's like, I, I don't know. I don't know. Let's talk. I, I don't want to, I don't want to dwell on my illness. I just want to say like, I think of some people who I know who are, you know, going through really horrible things and it's horrible to be sick. Uh, it really is. Maybe this, maybe this kind of, I, I want to say revelation, though maybe it's not really a revelation because I'm certain you knew that before. It's just sort of bringing the point home. Maybe this experience you're going through is partly why this guest essay in the New York Times spoke to you so deeply. And you sent it to me and I like jumped up and down. I loved it so much. Shall we talk about it? It really struck me for you even more than for me, because you talk about self-care a lot. And self-care is obviously really important. We all have to take care of ourselves. And so we know some people who don't, obviously, and it's bad. They get really run into the ground. And yet, it, it's lo- this article pointed out, really, that it, in so many ways, it's lost its meaning, that that it's just become kind of a self-indulgent, you know, if somebody's bothering you, you don't need to like reach out to them. You don't have to maintain your relationships if they're wearing on you. Uh, it's very much you, 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 or me, me, me is really, (laughs) it's really a better way of putting it. And, and I, I just found it very powerful that self-care has been distorted into this idea that all we're supposed to do is take care of ourselves. And as it, the article pointed out, the idea of self-care really started in the context of, of activism. Audre Lorde was was one of the proponents of it. And talking about how if we're going to be effective, we have to take care of ourselves, especially people who are living very hard lives. If we're going to be effective in creating change, we have to take care of ourselves. But that doesn't mean in this self-indulgent way. Anyway, I, I know you really love this article, so share your share your thoughts with me about it. Well, first, let's say it's called The Problem with Letting Therapy Speak Invade Everything. And it's by Tara Isabella Burton, who is the author of a book that I am very intrigued by called Strange Rights, New Religions for a Godless World. Anyway, yeah, I think you just hit the nail on the head. I actually am in the middle of writing about this for my Substack, which is jasminesinger.substack.com. There's no E on Jasmine. And I, I started by thanking you, first of all, for bringing this to my attention. And I would say that from my perspective, the basic gist of this piece is that Instagram therapy, 
like what I mean by that is normalizing catchphrases that allude to social media ready self growth, but might actually be at least somewhat co opting real therapy has created a nation of people who narrow mindedly focus on our own feelings at the detriment of others. And of course, it's possible to accomplish both prioritizing our feelings while also considering and uh, empathizing with others, that's that's a pretty awesome way to go through life. Like even in 12-step circles, when boundaries need to be drawn, we're encouraged to detach with love, like as in not with biting hashtags. So one thing I do find fascinating about the article, especially vis-a-vis activism is that this practice of like hashtag self-care has been so far removed, as you said, from what Audre Lorde called an act of political warfare. So Lorde saw self-care as crucial to activism, you know, not an excuse to like take a bubble bath or get a mani-pedi. Not that there's anything wrong. In fact, I'm currently growing out my pedi, which I got last summer. (laughs) And I love bubble baths. But the quote unquote, highly subjectivist form of individualism, which is something that this sociology professor, Eva Aluz, had stated in the article, it's overridden the necessity to pursue self-actualization through community and community building and collective care. I think we're just so busy in this kind of social media heavy world, conflating feelings as facts that we're not examining the bigger picture, that we're not examining the the way our words and actions have impact on others because we're just like self-obsessed and the the like likes that we get on on our posts they're just validating that. And also there is something else that the article brought up that I found kind of interesting which is that there used to be places where people could explore these sort of big questions of life, these moral questions. And, and I, I remember doing that myself in religious settings. Not that I'm, I'm atheist, as, as you know, but when I was a kid growing up Jewish, I would go to these rabbi discussions and, and, and I would discuss difficult moral topics like human euthanasia, which for the record, I am a fan of. And I can't imagine how that kind of conversation would have happened if I if I were just like sitting alone in my room scrolling. I might not have even thought about it because I would have been too busy focusing on my feelings about something. <laughs> I mean, it's a dangerous thing, right? For people like like me, like you, who are sensitive, who are who, who are like, you know, very in touch with our feelings and and I wonder how how much we are living in silos when these internet culture hashtag happy crap things are what are driving our society, not bigger conversations that we could consider multiple perspectives and not prioritizing collective care and true self-care. The article has so many great points. And I, I do think as you're, as you're talking about it, that we are in a particularly fortunate place vis-a-vis this because as animal activists, we do have, I mean, 
it's not a perfect situation. It's not like there are no self-indulgent people in animal activism, but we kind of do have a world perspective that goes beyond like, well, if I need to take care of myself and that's the highest virtue, which, you know, is kind of the, the attitude that she's criticizing. So I, I do feel like our position as animal activists, if we take it really seriously, as almost everybody listening to this does, and really think of it as the context in which we live, can can help us get beyond the, uh, well, uh, I'll, I'll just give this quote, feelings have become the authoritative guide to what we ought to do at the expense of our sense of communal obligations. I, I mean, that's the really scary thing. Well, if it feels good, then it is good. And we all know that if it's good for animals, it's good. And that doesn't always feel good, but sometimes it does. So I think that, not to say that we're better than everybody else, but, you know, of course, we oh are. <laughs> but I think that that's not really what I'm meaning to say, though. What I'm meaning to say is that the life that goes on when you start to understand about animals and about life and, and about the pl- our place in the world uh, vis-a-vis animals and, and other lives does give you a context in which to kind of get you out of this crazy uh, uh Self, self-care, self-centeredness. Um, you know, they've become confused, self-care and self-centeredness. Uh, here's another pull-out quote, which I really liked. We have become more and more used to thinking of ourselves as the main characters in our own lives and other people as the obstacles in our way. I, I think it's just more and more of an incentive to make the animals the, the main characters in our lives. Right, because under that umbrella of the mindset that we are all that matters you're creating a perfect system for the animals to be the absent referent as totally Carol Adams says. And, and of course for some people who it's going to feel good to eat animal products because a, they're addicted and B they're not questioning the, the bigger questions here because they're just too focused on like comfort food to think about the comfort of animals, which I sound like I'm being very righteous right now. And I I probably am. I, I know that I have an ego. I'm a writer, you know, like, it's, it's part of being a writer or an actor. It's like, yeah, we have egos. But that doesn't mean that the way we feel and the way we see the world begins and ends with us. If, if it was, we would not be successful at writing because who the hell wants to read that masturbatory crap? You know what I mean? Like the only thing that begins and ends with us is like, what, our belly button? Which isn't even true because that was also attached to somebody else at some point. Yeah, <laughs> that, that, that is a physical fact. And I don't think she's saying, I don't think we're saying that, you know, only animal activists have a way out of this, this trap of being totally self-referenced. But I think, I get, all right, now I'm treading into dangerous territory and I'm not at the top of my game. So I, forgive me if I don't express this right. But, but I, I mean, she is pointing out that, that, there used to be particularly religion, but other other ideas of duty and doing the right thing that would guide people's lives that, you know, have kind of gone missing from the culture, that duty is, is not a concept anymore, or it's harming people. It's not just that this is self-indulgent, it's that it doesn't make people happy. There's, you know, it makes people search for something. And I do think that uh, that possibly our care for animals can can is is substituting for that and that's a reason to to bring it even more centrally the focus of our lives and to you know and to not just duty to to the 
the planet and the other animals, but to each other, especially the people we know and we care about. You know, sometimes as she alludes to take that phone call that you don't really want to take from that friend who's kind of a pain, but who really needs you right now? Just take it anyway, even though it's not going to do serve you that well. You know, it doesn't mean you have to put up with, with destructive people, but you don't have to have some rule in your life to never, never deal with destructive people because everybody's destructive once in a while. Everybody's a burden once in a while. As having been a burden lately and been very well cared for, I can identify with that. So I did get a text recently from someone who I would consider a bit of a burden sometimes. And she was taking something that I did personally. And like the thing I did had to do with just my own life. And this person like felt bad that they weren't invited or something. And my initial instinct when I got it was like, oh, come on. You know, like, and and then I remember for some reason, I kept thinking about it. I talked to my coach about it at some point and she said, she just kind of reminded me, it sounds like that person's really struggling. Like a way to reply actually could be, hey, hey are, are you are you doing okay? Or, or something like that, like empathy or reaching out. And it was such a simple pivot, but it, it was so true. And it changed also the way that I approached the situation because I was taking it personally. I was taking her taking it personally. I was taking that personally when honestly, it's about something much bigger than both of those things. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And as I said, it doesn't, you know, there's been a lot of discourse in recent years of like not putting up with toxic people. That is the counterpoint to this, I guess. And one shouldn't put up with people who are toxic, but, but, that doesn't mean that everybody who who needs help right now is toxic. And, and it also doesn't mean that putting up with them or reaching out to help them or uh, doing the hard thing vis-a-vis animals and maybe witnessing suffering that you really, really don't want to, as you know, all of our listeners do. Ultimately, it enhances your life, even though in the moment it, it feels harmful. So some of those difficult things are, are worth doing. And and this is a good reminder because when this airs, it is Thanksgiving week. And so we just want to acknowledge that, that this is a difficult time for a lot of people listening. We want to underline the fact that we are here for you. And that's another reason why I'm so excited about our upcoming platform that we will be introducing next year. It was going to be Mighty Networks. Mighty Networks is changing what they're called. So it will be Mighty Networks' new name, which I think is called Spaces. In any case, it's a community platform that I think will really add to what we're doing here at our Hen House. Because not only are we creating the media that you're listening to now, but we're also really building a community of people who, who are going through similar struggles. So a struggle that people might be going through this week is perhaps some of you will be at tables that have dead animals at them, that dead animals that are like iconic for this time of year. And it can be really hard. So I just want to, first of all, normalize that, that yes, it can be really hard. And just offer a couple tips, which I totally haven't planned. So these are just off the top of my head, and I'll be curious what yours are too, Marianne. So first and foremost, if you don't want to go, you absolutely have agency to not go. I'm going to just say that. And I recognize that there are consequences of that, but it is still within your control to not go unless you're a child, in which case, I'm so sorry, but you probably will have this choice at some point in the future. Uh, and, and more than that, I think like bookending events with with safe people and, and good opportunities 
is always good. So for example, maybe you have a best friend who you call before and after Thanksgiving who's vegan. Maybe you have like something that you eat beforehand and after that you can look forward to, like a yummy cupcake that's sitting in your refrigerator waiting for you to come home that night for you to look forward to. Maybe you have a, a vegan Thanksgiving on Friday, Friday after. There's You could take your angst and adopt a turkey with it. Lots of sanctuaries are doing adopted turkey programs now. And you could be a great advocate by bringing incredible vegan food to your Thanksgiving table if you want. And a lot of people, by the way, I know are do not celebrate Thanksgiving at all because of what it stands for. And just want to say, yeah, awesome. Like I, I get it. So there are all kinds of people under the sun who are listening to our henhouse right now that will be struggling with multiple aspects of this this holiday that has become so, so appropriated and and so complex for people who have a social, you know, social consciousness. So I feel you. And and for our international issues, sorry to you for every year hijacking our conversation to talk about Thanksgiving, but it's really hard. It's a really hard one for us. So I think you can probably translate the same messages to uh, local holidays that are very, very centered on, a, on the consumption of a particular animal. And of course, one of the things that's going on this year is that it's less likely that that many people will have turkeys because they're all dying of bird flu. And this is seen as a tragic tragedy for people that they won't be able to eat them because they died of bird flu. The, the, the complications just become unending. And yeah, I don't, I mean, that was a great list and I'm not sure my brain is working well enough to think of anything in addition, only going back to our self-care article and talking about how self-care should be communal You know, if there's another vegan uh, who you can share with, either on social media or in real life, uh, share your your angst. That's that's a good idea, and always, always a good idea to help out an animal when 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 confronted by difficult things, and whether it's walking a dog at the shelter or or whatever, just buying a special treat for your own pup. uh, That 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 is a way to get through uh, a lot of angst. And another way to get through angst is by listening to Sanctuary, which is our radio play that, much like Alice's Restaurant, we replay every year on Thanksgiving week as an additional episode. It is a play, just to remind you, that is Thanksgiving-themed and vegan-themed, written by John Yunker, who is a wonderful, incredible, talented human being. And we all, the, the our Hen House team, we all were acting in it and we were the crew. It was at Symphony Space in New York City a few years ago and it's just exciting to be able to play it again. So maybe play that while you're making your vegan roast. (laughs) When will we put that up? Yeah, it's going to be this week. Honestly, I don't remember if it's Tuesday or Wednesday. (laughs) Oh, okay. But definitely in time for Thanksgiving Day. Absolutely. And with that, I think we should get to the interview today because we've been rambling quite a lot and I know people want to hear from Altamouche. Altamouche Saeed is pursuing an LLM in animal law at the Center for Animal Law Studies at Lewis and Clark School and is a legislative advocacy intern at Best Friends Animal Society. He is also a lawyer based in Pakistan and is co-founder and director of Charity Doings Foundation, a nonprofit that aims to save all life, be it human, animal, or the environment, in Pakistan. He is also an ambassador for Comprehensive Disaster Response Services, a nonprofit that is running Pakistan's first trap-neuter-vaccinate return program and the biggest animal rescue service. He will be joining Marianne right after this. 
everyone, Jasmine here. Did you know that you can dedicate a podcast episode to someone you love? Cool, right? For $250, you can honor a loved one, human or non, and at the same time support our henhouse's efforts to change the world for animals. You can either record a 30-second special message that we'll play on the air, we'll just need an MP3 file, or you can send us the text you want recorded and we'll record it for you. To dedicate a podcast episode, simply let us know by emailing communications at ourhenhouse.org. And thank you so much for your support. By the way, since this is $250, it will automatically make you a flock member. If you have any questions about that, let us know in your email. Can't wait to hear from you. Welcome to our hen house, Altamush. Thank you for having me here, actually. I am so thrilled to have you because you're going to tell us, you know, something we've been hearing about in the papers, but none of us feel like we know enough about. And you're particularly informed about the situation of animals uh, regarding what's going on in Pakistan. I mean, of course, it's been a tragedy for both animals and humans. Um, The flooding has been horrific. Can you just kind of get us up to date? We'll be a little out of date by the time this goes up, but get us up to date kind of on on what the current status is uh, regarding the floods in Pakistan. The floods originally started uh, at no fault of Pakistan. That's what I would actually start with because the global emissions, everybody understands, we're just three to 4% responsible. But on the other end, uh, one third of my country was actually underwater. And one third is a huge, huge amount of uh, people and animals. However, uh, under the law, the the only law that we have that deals with disasters is the National Disaster Management Act. It was made in 2010 because we had these floods before as well, which is something that I found really odd and disturbing a bit was the animal protection uh, scheme of the the disaster management was uh, not something that was an integral issue. And and because of that... uh, I'm, I'm like just, uh, it's rather unfortunate to just say these numbers, but uh, over 1.16 livestock animals have died in Pakistan. And the, the term livestock only that refers to livestock animals. So it doesn't refer to all other wild animals that were affected or killed by these floods, because uh, sadly, these are the animals that have been given that monetary label, which we all understand needs to change. Of course, the human travesty part is also very huge. Over 1,700 humans have died. I cannot even recall, like around 14 to 15,000 kilometers of roads have been destroyed. Houses have been lost. And and the government is actually trying to do its best to solve the problem because the, the magnitude of this issue, Marianne, was something that Pakistan actually could not ever expect. So they did have all these... Uh, instruments available, but they were not enough for the disaster of this level. So that is the current situation uh, right now in Pakistan. It's really, I mean, I know a bit about it and hearing you talk about it, it really brings home just the magnitude of this this disaster. Your work has, of course, predated the floods. And before we get into the specifics of how your work relates to the current disaster management, can you just tell us kind of generally about the Charity Doings Foundation and its goals? And then we can get into some of those specifics. Of course. Charity Doings Foundation is a registered organization in Pakistan. We are a nonprofit Uh, We have a really small, humble team, and uh, our main goal is actually to empower communities. But for for us personally, the community includes all members, all living members of of the community, and that means animals, humans, and the environment. 
it's just not possible, you know, to talk about humans and animals and you forget the environmental part or, or leave any one of these three out. So that's our bigger goal. And we have a lot of projects to, to complete that. For example, we have a water project that originally started for human beings. But now what we do is we have installed a pond at all of our water projects, which are more than 800, and many of them are solar because we try to keep the environmental impact as low as possible. And what really happens at these magical sites is that a human being is drinking water, a child, and on the other end, there's a, there's a baby goat drinking water from the stained water pond. And it's all over the country. So we are trying to tell people animal welfare is important without telling them, because I think that's true DEI, in, in my opinion. And our other projects are, of course, human-centric. We have uh, community kitchens because people are in need of food every day. We have them daily. We do lots of tree plantations, water projects. Those are something that connects all the ideas together. There's a lot more happening, actually. But th these are our values, and we try to inculcate them in, in everything. What kind of work are you doing and how are you incorporating? You mentioned how you incorporate animals into into relief work. They all come together. So how is that happening with disaster relief? A disaster where humans and animal victims existed was something that's not new to us. So I just want to give it as like a small snapshot of how it started. So in, in COVID, I just want to give this example because uh, when COVID happened in Pakistan, this was March 2020, I was still a student and everything was just locked down. You know, people had lost everything and we were trying to get people the food. But at the same time, we personally felt that the animals who were on the streets at the very least, they were reliant on these leftovers from the restaurants and those restaurants were closed. So we started a, a movement, it's called Empathy for the Voiceless. And uh, we actually since May 2020, have been feeding as much as we can to the stray animals on the streets because we thought that let's just keep this movement going and originally started in COVID. And that idea always existed with us. And uh, in the floods, we saw that the animals were actually invisible from the whole situation because you have to understand, given the dynamics of Pakistan, it's a poor country. The dynamics are such as that and people are reliant, of, of course, to be saved first, which is Something that's natural has happened in history. However, we cannot be a true society if we leave out the, the voiceless ones because they were, I think, more severely affected. I shouldn't say this, but I saw cows being, uh, you know, drowned in, in the, in the floods in the massive torrential rain. And it's, it's a, it's a horrible sight for anybody to see. So what we did was we worked for the human beings, of course, um, getting them cooked food. Because in a disaster zone, nobody can cook. So if you just give them food, that's not good charity. And we got them uh, tents. Now there's a dengue issue as well because of water. And all these issues are going to come in. And there's a zoocosis angle as well about keeping animals protected. Because you cannot stop those if, if the animals are protected. So mosquito nets helping women, especially giving them sanitary pads. Because in these situations, I think their their personal concerns have to be elevated. But at the same time, for the animals, what we did was two very simple things, things we have never done before because we have never seen a disaster of this kind. So we started with animal feed and we got them this uh, this feed. It's called silage and it's basically highly nutritious. It's made of wheat and maize, all these ingredients that uh, cows normally love to eat. Our first consignment went in for seven tons of animal feed last last month. And we have received a good donation to keep this on. So I'm, I'm targeting at least 50 tons of animal feed within the disaster zone for these livestock animals. And on the other end, we are basically providing them emergency vet care. This is new personally to me, but um, I, I just uh, keep 
telling myself, why didn't I do this sooner? So emergency veterinary care is something we're providing right now. We have a, a team of small vets. It's it's not a huge system because this is a disaster zone and we have not done it before. We're learning. So what we're offering the incentive to the people is that they can bring their livestock animals with them. We'll give them food. We'll get them checked and cured if there's any issue. So we've been doing this since the start of August, but the animal welfare part actually started at the end of August because I was personally fundraising for that. And it's just uh, kicking up as we speak. I mean, I think the answer to this may be obvious to most people listening, but I still want to talk about it. Why did you choose to incorporate animals into work on behalf of people rather than doing something totally separate, rather than having, you know, one organization for animals, one organization for humans? Why are these issues specifically related maybe to disaster relief and to Pakistan? Why are these issues that should be addressed together, the welfare of the animals and the welfare of the humans? Actually, it started from a very personal belief, but now I think it's it's much more common. Uh, it's just that the animal welfare movement is also a human welfare problem. And there are some things that the animals cannot do. For example, they cannot tell you that they're in need of help. They will cry. They will do everything that they can to tell you, but you have to take action. So you cannot actually help the animals if you are not also helping the humans. But this is a very specific context situation. So I will firstly try to analyze it in, in the way of Pakistan. So Pakistan is a, is, a, is a poor country. We have to accept that. And, and the human beings who are working with these animals who are part of their lives, they have to firstly take care of their families themselves, and then they take care of these animals. So we, we don't want to actually create a divide between the two because uh, we have heard this on many occasions. I'm sure you've heard this. And now I think it, it makes some sense. I don't completely agree with this. People say that, why are you working for animals when you're seeing humans suffer? I don't agree 100% with the situation, but there is some some logic to it. While my actions are not com- any way based on this situation, I just feel that uh, a true community is somewhere everybody has a good life. And the fact that if we empower human beings, they can empower these animals themselves. I just feel that this movement can, uh, you know, combine all of its powers than, than just being two separate movements. A better community, a better society is something I'm sure all animals and all humans want. Yeah, and I, I think it really brings light to the fact that the the answers to how one should approach these issues depend on where you are and the situation you're dealing with. You cannot judge what's going on in Pakistan with what's going on in the U.S. I mean, the goals may be the same ultimately, but the ways to get there are obviously going to be very different. And so what kind of animals are we talking about? Companions, farmed animals, working animals, strays. Are we? Are, are is it all animals who are involved in the in the kind of work that you're doing to one extent or another? In the flood, it's primarily livestock animals because uh, the, the the flood actually affected most of the desert-like areas that were villages in Pakistan. We have so many villages that don't have even have electricity, so the concept of roads does not exist there. And these animals are actually reliant on their farmed animals that are not like. CAFOs, these, are, these animals live with these families, so they're part of them. And they really want to take care of them. However, because of the economic angle, they just have to prioritize their families first, and then they take care of these animals. So in the floods, it's, it's, it's all kind of livestock animals. We have goats, we have cows, we have oxes. On some occasions, we even had camels. But the water projects that we are targeting, that we have placed all over Pakistan, we have like around 800 plus now. They target all kinds of animals. So 
many of the travelers have camels with them so they come to drink their their goats there's a even um, and in the suburban areas when there's a like an urban setting these water projects are used by dogs and every and every kind of other companion animals but our work is primarily for the animals that are on the streets it's because i think they are in a much deeper need of protection than the animals that are inside people's homes while i do respect those animals as well we should do everything we can for them but our we are primarily target on the streets animals okay we all expect climate disasters you know like let's face it we're not at the end of this problem we're barely at the beginning you have probably in Pakistan right now more experience with incorporating animals into into relief programs, particularly in countries you know that are not entrenched in factory farming, but have you know people who have anim- livestock animals and who have their own animals. You might know more about this than almost anybody. Sadly, you have developed expertise in something very very quickly because of this disaster. So what are your thoughts about how animals should be incorporated into disaster relief going forward, even inside Pakistan, but, but, but everywhere? Why is this important? I mean, I think the why part is actually, it's a nonsensical question. Of course, it's very important because uh, you cannot expect to protect uh, humans. That's just thing from a human angle. If you're not protecting your animals, you can cause all sorts of climate disasters and other kinds of disasters. COVID was an example. However given the specific context situation that we just talked about before, I definitely think because of Hurricane Katrina, things change in the U.S. And uh, Hurricane Ian is actually a good example of how things have improved. But there were needs, for example, the GAW Act that was recently passed last month. I think it's it's an excellent act. But countries like Pakistan have yet to consider animals being an integral part of being protected in disasters. So our current law, which is called the National Disaster Management Act, it only protects human beings. And I think based on, uh, I mean, I know for sure, based on the, the flood that have happened right now, there is going to be still some resistance on the government's part to put animals into protection in that law because of economic reasons. However, there are moral reasons and scientific reasons available. For example, the loss of biodiversity and and just livestock, you know, livestock is economic livelihood for these people as well. So you just don't have to protect animals for animal sake. Of course, they have their own intrinsic identity. They are very important. But in these situations, you can protect animals as economic livelihood of the people themselves. They have lost everything and they need something to feed their babies, their their wives, their elderly. They need something. And these animals, even though they contribute a lot, like, for example, in form, in form of food, milk and everything, they're also precious company for these people. And they have lost these these things. So there's also this emotional angle that has not even been addressed yet. Uh, after the floods, and based on all these developments, um, I'm actually I'm actually working on a on a document trying to amend this this act that I just talked about before, that uh, animals would be included as a vulnerable community, as a member of a vulnerable community, and be part of that act. And 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 the system already exists, so I'm not changing anything. I'm just making the animals a part of the law, and all these commissions that are supposed to be formed will be formed. But to do that, there's also another need. So we have a commission that basically deals with these disaster management plans, such as FEMA does for the U.S. At this point, there's nobody representing the livestock or the federal department that deals with animals in these commission plans. 
So we also need to include members who could talk about and advocate about animals and have expertise. And, and then they go into the plan, but we will be able to make something that's effective because, I mean, I don't, I don't want to get into other problems, but this is how, how it can start and I'm working on it. You mentioned that, that and, and it's obviously true, that a lot of the, the animal farming in Pakistan is smallholders and they have their own animals. And, and it's a very different situation from the U.S. where almost all, all animal farming is factory farming. I mean, I assume factory farming has found its way into Pakistan because it's found its way in some ways into virtually everywhere in the world. But how, how far has it found its way? Is most animal, animal-based food in, in Pakistan raised by small farmers or are there factory farms? There are, but it's, it's, it's a bend because there's a huge divide in the urban and the, and the rural areas in Pakistan. So all these small animal holders, they're actually not part of the workforce of these capos or factory farms. So they will always produce for themselves and take care of these animals as a part of their own families. And I think this is something that the U.S. would ideally want because I think that's animal welfare and the human welfare of the animals and themselves. So, But that is only limited to the rural areas. While the urban areas, for example, where I live normally in Lahore and Punjab and, and the other major cities, uh, most of our food production does come from these uh, multi-corporations, for example, like Nestle. Most of these people would actually have, like, they would want that milk because they think that it's just safe. And on the back end, Pakistan is actually not there yet in terms of uh, how things are changing. For example, the, the Smithfield farm case that just came up, that was amazing. But uh, those things have yet to like, you know, the veil has yet to be taken off yet in Pakistan, but it is there. So you are really working on two very separate fronts uh, of, of different kinds of animal farming. I know you are yourself vegan and most of our listeners are vegan. I'm just wondering, how does that intersect with, with this work that you do to protect farm animals and respect the, the, respect the lives of both the people and the animals who are, uh, who are living together in, you know, in small holdings and, and living a, a different kind of farming? How does that intersect with veganism? I'm not sure there's an answer to this question, but, uh, but give it a try. Well, that is a very tough question, and thank you for that ending part, but... Uh... Veganism is something that's very new to Pakistan yet. I think I would be probably in the 1% to 2% of the entire country who's vegan. My concerns for animal welfare are very different from the people that I currently work with. However, given if, if we shroud this question in, in a real realistic sense, given the economic angle that exists in Pakistan, while I really want animals to be free, the best solution that currently exists for me on the table is that the animals, specifically the livestock, is living directly with the, with the farmers and they're taking care of them. So there's nobody taking them to these slaughterhouses to be killed, but rather they're just used for milk. And it, it can actually happen, but not through veganism. So I would say humane education and giving these people tools to, to know why the animals are important. Uh, we can actually teach these people how, how to take care of these animals. And, and something that just popped up in my head, this is something that I'm currently working on. As a measure of adaptation, which is something sadly nobody's working on, we're actually trying to establish a school in these disaster zones. So we are going to be teaching these, these kids who have, like, don't have anything left for themselves and their families. So we're trying to create jobs, specifically teachers who are going to come in and the children of that community who will learn there. But the other component that we're trying to add in that as an adaptation measure is teach people how to respond to disaster measures 
in emergency spaces and at the same time how to take care of their livestock animals while in in a in a peace time and in a war time time sorry a conflict time like a disaster time so we're trying to develop some courses and teach these people especially on the angle of humane education because uh, if i tell them be vegan that is something aspirational i would want them to accept it but i think the first step would be humane education teaching them these these things first yeah no i i understand that like people are just are suffering at almost unbelievable levels and and to go in there and start doing vegan education would um would certainly not <laughs> not work at the same time i mean we know and and it is increasingly accepted at least among intelligent people that moving towards a vegan diet is good for the world. Like looking at this in a really global sense and in a long-term kind of solution, moving towards a vegan diet is is not that Pakistan, as you pointed out, is hardly in the forefront of causing climate change, but but it is uh, one of the countries suffering from it. And, and moving towards a vegan diet is a very positive step. Do you see that as part of your vision for the future of Pakistan? And actually, another thing occurred to me when you were talking, these floods, which sadly are probably not the ending of floods in Pakistan, it's a very low-lying country and obviously very vulnerable, have shown how vulnerable livestock are. Uh, so many people must have lost lost their animals, as you pointed out, by the millions. Is part of your vision for the future, do you see moving towards a vegan diet as part of Pakistan's and, and the world's future? I mean, for me, becoming vegan was, of course, animal welfare, but the environmental aspects are something that's that's out in the open, especially in the global sense. For example, if people just knew how much water or how much uh, uh, environmental carbon footprint just goes into feeding these animals that are eventually going to be like eaten by us on our plates is, is astronomical and people don't know these facts. So education and uh, humane education, environmental welfare, these are like, these are very simple dots and people can connect them. COVID was a huge example. People just didn't realize it. There are some treaties, organizations that are working on making that actually the foundational, the starting point where these conversations can go on. It's, it's definitely there. What do American and perhaps European, well, Western in general, animal advocates need to know about helping animals in, in Pakistan? How does it differ from the work that is being done here? I mean, you've laid out some of that, but but perhaps in a more global sense. What, what do we need to know about the world that we're missing by just seeing in our own backyards? One thing I would definitely say would be the combination of animal welfare with human welfare and environmental welfare. That is something that we need to understand, especially not just Pakistan, all other low-lying countries and where these floods are happening, especially in, in Peru. And there were some, some of these glaciers and mountains are going to melt. And the people are, the, the villages that are closer to these areas are eventually the ones who are going to get affected first. I mean, if you think from a country perspective, you would actually lose focus. You have to look from, from a very global perspective. Because if we do not care for these animals, which are directly linked to biodiversity and environmental welfare, the the sixth mass extinction would actually happen much sooner than than has been envisioned by scientists. Do you think that uh, there is a concern in Pakistan, a growing concern, a growing awareness of this, or is it still an uphill battle? Things have changed. So when I was a student, like uh, back in my law school in Pakistan, there was this uh, civil coalition formed. It was called Climate Action Pakistan. It's still very active. 
and we started with the first uh, climate action march that happened in Pakistan. I was one of its organizing members. And these people are actually, they, they're working on different issues. For example, the smog issue, how it's related to human welfare, but the, the specific connection of how climate change is affecting animals and humans is something that has now come to surface because of these floods. But these people still say that the government could not have expected any of this. So the response is is still not up to the level that is required. Yeah, well, it sounds like it sounds like it would have been hard to expect something this dreadful, but certainly now we can all expect it. I mean, obviously the efforts within Pakistan to fight climate change can't be that great because it's not Pakistan that's causing climate change. Is there also an effort to put pressure uh, on us, on, on us in the U.S.? And, and, and is that having any effect? Because uh, I'm not seeing a lot of that, but I'd like to have a little hope that there is a developing, at least in the West, a, a more global perspective about responsibilities. Well, Pakistan, given the, the political landscape of the world, especially what's happening right now, and I don't want to say it, uh, these things are actually not happening at the level they're supposed to be. So the pushback is actually very political rather than environmental. And you're asking a, a country that's on the bottom to push somebody at the top. So that that's actually yeah. not a balanced thing to ask them. So I, I think it would be rather unfair, actually. Yeah, I, I, I sadly... I sadly agree. You mentioned that you studied law, but more recently you've been studying at Lewis and Clark Law School in their master's degree program. Switching subjects a little, can you tell us a little bit about that and how it has related to your work on, on the ground in Pakistan? Lewis and Clark, um, this was actually a dream school for me. So I'm, I'm like living the dream, studying what I wanted to. And I'm actually the second person from Pakistan to be a part of this program. So that is something that will always stay with me. The bill that I'm uh, that I have actually written, the the amendment to include animals in the National Disaster Management Act, was an idea that I'm doing for a paper topic here, and my professors are extremely helpful. And one of them is uh, I'll just take his name, Professor Russ Mead. He is an amazing person, and he's uh, he has helped me build that bill, and he's also actually helping me, completely not related, uh, getting Charity Dreams Foundation get registered in the U.S. Oh, that's because great. I want to I want to connect the work here and because of the donors and everything and take that to Pakistan because of the global perspective of animal welfare. We we shouldn't just stick to one continent. You know, animals need to be saved everywhere. Yeah, animals are not citizens of any country. They they are all all of our responsibility. I totally agree. Well, as long as we're on that topic, tell people how they can find out more about uh the organization and and donate if they are interested. We'll also put this in the show notes if you if you want to look it up. The idea, I mean, because of the exchange and everything, uh, given what the U.S. has already learned from, especially from Hurricane Katrina, in in the disaster sense. So I'm just trying to transplant all that knowledge to Pakistan, and I'm also actually externing a best friends animal society. They work with community cats and and all kind of companion animals, and I'm trying to transplant all that knowledge back to Pakistan. But that's my animal animal law work. But on the other end, the nonprofit charity doings work. I am. Uh, we would be need actually need a lot of donations to keep this thing going. The water projects. We are like at a thousand now, almost gonna hit a thousand, and we just started with one like three years ago. So things are changing, and uh, animals are not citizens of any state. We have a mutual responsibility, and in that. Uh, scenario, they can just, you know, reach out to our websites. I'm assuming the links would be there. 
Yeah, we'll put the links in the in the show notes. So they can review our work and it would be really odd for them to find any other organization that connects all these three things. And I hope somebody picks it up for me and takes it to the global and even a bigger level in Pakistan. That's my hope, actually. Well, it sounds like you're leading the charge right now. So I, I hope others join you as well. But I, I, I think that you are well equipped to lead this. You're doing just really amazing work. I'm, I'm really thrilled we had a chance to talk. Before I let you go, just... I'm not sure I really got to this when we talked about the floods, but what does it look like right now in Pakistan? I mean, I assume a lot of the flood floods have receded, but it's such an enormous, enormous piece of the country. What, is it, what does it look like? Is it just miles of disaster? And where are people? Where are people and, and their animals to this extent they've survived? Where are they being sheltered? So for the people, uh, because of the floods, they don't have any houses anymore. So they're on the streets. So uh, these all these uh, disaster management organizations, and there are many, they are doing their very best to get these people houses and in form of tents. So that is something that's temporary measures happening. Community kitchens are happening all over the country. We are doing several of them. There's a, another issue that come up because of the water issue. So it's there's a dengue epidemic in our country right now. And, and, and more things will happen. So we are getting them and many people are getting them these mosquito nets, especially the kids who are more vulnerable. I'm not exaggerating. All the, the effort that has happened is just, you know, three to 4% of the rescue efforts of the entire 100%. So there's still 90% who have received nothing because there's just not enough to give to everybody. And that's just the human angle. The animals are sadly still invisible. So uh, there are a few organizations that are, and I can count them on my fingers. They are actually doing these sessions, especially in the urban areas, pushing the government to to change these laws and uh, work on sheltering these animals. However, the the humanitarian organizations, they're only focused on human beings. There's just one more that I actually am affiliated with. So it's called CDRS. I'm actually their ambassador for animal welfare. And they are running this, uh, the, the biggest and the first DNVR center in Pakistan. And they have these animal rescue services as well. They are also on the forefront of helping animals in the middle of floods. But as of right now, the, the question that you asked, um, I would have to, say, have to say no, that we don't have shelters for animals available. For now, we're just trying to get them fed. And even getting the emergency vet care is something that's still not happening at a bigger scale. So the shelter point will actually have to come after. Actually, that gave me a really good idea. And I'll try to work on something and making that possible. Oh, well, good. I'm going to take total credit for that if you pull that off, because I don't even know what it is. But you had that idea while you were talking to me. <laughs> yeah, I, and I agree. Uh, it's just, I, 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 why am I being funny? It's the tragedy of just monumental proportions. The amount of suffering for both people and animals is just, it's truly unimaginable. Uh, and, you know, as we both said, it's a harbinger of what is to come. So... Thank you so much for joining us today to tell us about it and about your work, Altamush. It's it's very inspiring. Thank you so much for actually letting me be part of Hen House. It was always a dream for me as an animal rights activist and a lawyer. So I, I'm so thrilled. I cannot even thank you enough. <laughs> that makes me very happy. 
If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our henhouse will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Anxieties are rising. Our first story is actually relates to an article that was in the New York Times while I was on my, uh, my, my knee surgery hiatus which is an amazing article. I, I, if you've been listening for a while, you occasionally hear me mention Frank Mitloiner, who's a UC Davis professor, and he runs this academic center. And he is constantly trotted out by everybody in the industry to defend the industry, particularly on climate issues. And the name of this article, which was in the New York Times, is he's an outspoken defender of meat. Industry funds his research files show. Now, this, sh- this article made a big splash. It certainly doesn't seem surprising to me to find out that industry funds his research. I think that was obvious all along. But it's nice to see mainstream media. The New York Times, uh, like, unbelievable that the New York Times would be running this, kind of finally catching on to the fact that maybe this bullshit being dished out at, the UC- at UC Davis regarding the climate implications of livestock is exactly that bullshit. And, uh, well... It's literally bullshit, isn't it? Uh, so anyway, not surprising that there would start to be some some reaction to this kind of very critical article on on all of these funding sources, which were not illegally not disclosed, apparently, according to this article. But apparently the disclosure requirements are pretty pathetic because uh, nobody but me and you seem to know about this. So anyway, uh, the first article I've seen from the industry responding to this is from Drovers.com. Dear New York Times, here's your sign. And uh, it's pointing out that uh, the New York Times attempt to harass, <laughs> harass Frank Mitloiner, a University of California Davis professor and the director of the CLEAR Center, who is a prominent researcher of livestock greenhouse gas emissions. And it's very critical of this attempt to harass and this article also points out that Mitloiner is widely embraced by the livestock industry as well, isn't he just? <laughs> For using science to push back on critics who only see food animal production as an environmental disaster, uh, which, as we all know, it is. And you, as we all know, science can be used in many, many different ways. And he, they point out that because of Mitloiner's... Uh, Criticism of the 2006 UN Food and Agriculture Organization report, Livestock's Long Shadow, it was revised, which is just sad, because uh, if we'd done a little more in 2006, maybe we wouldn't be in the disaster that we're in now. But, you know, they made, quote unquote, corrections. They point out that Mitt says he's not a climate denier, which I don't think anybody's saying he is a climate denier. He's more denying the contribution of the methane reduced by livestock to climate, but not I don't think he's saying there isn't a climate problem, but that's why he started the the CLEAR Center, which stands for, and 
You'll see when you find out what the Clear Center stands for, it does not clarify a whole lot what it really stands for. Clarity and Leadership for Environmental Awareness and Research. Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh, my God. These people. So this is his basic point, according to this. I, yeah, it, you know, it's more complicated than I understand. But um, the basic point is here. You know, methane is a very, very intense and potent greenhouse gas. But unlike other greenhouse gases, it does uh, dissipate much sooner. So it says here, consider your basic 10,000 head feed yard. It produces the same amount of methane that it did 10 years ago. Well, assuming it had 10,000 head 10 years ago. Yeah, that only makes sense. But because methane only remains in the atmosphere for 10 years, that feed yard is not adding any new methane to the atmosphere. Well, you know, aside from the fact that, as it's been pointed out, that, that this the methane isn't the only thing that greenhouse gas that is released by the livestock industry. And there's no reason to believe that the livestock industry is not growing. It's not staying stable. But aside from that, we, we it's not okay to keep produce, producing the same amount of this extremely potent greenhouse gas. We have to produce less of it. It's just such nonsense. So according to this article... Um, the author, who the author of of the article in Drovers, uh, which is Greg Henderson, um, is not critical of her. Um, in says that she never questions Mitloiner's research, which I guess is true. I'm not sure that's her. That's what she was setting out to do. I'm not sure she considers herself self qualified to do that. I don't know. But she notes Mitloiner gets a lot of his funding for research from the livestock industry. For instance, the Clear Center received funds from the American Feed Industry Association and the California Cattle Council, both legitimate nonprofit industry groups. Like, you don't think that's important that we would know that? By the way, Tabuchi describes their relationship with Mitloiner makes you think those livestock groups are run by a Jimmy Hoffa acolyte. Yeah, I prefer Jimmy Hoffa. Thanks very much. Which begs the question, just who does the New York Times expect to fund research on cow emissions? I, I guess his point is that, of course, it should be the industry. What, how else would we find out anything about cow emissions? Unbelievable. These people are Unbelievable. All right. Cage-free caveats are quickly becoming the new normal. Not surprising, right? This is from whatpoultry.com. And I guess, you know, to some extent or another, and this is by one Meredith Johnson, to one extent or another, we all saw this coming. But, you know, over the past 10 years or so, there have been a lot of negotiated settlements between animal rights groups and um, campaigners and and big, uh, mostly mostly retailers of of eggs and poultry, that uh, they would, well, of eggs specifically, because we're talking about battery cages here, that they would they would get battery cages out of their supply line. And, you know, to some extent, they have, but they certainly haven't done it 100% as they have promised. Generally, the, the year that was promised was 2025, which is getting close. Um, and so recently, this article points out companies have started to change their animal welfare commitment. Are they changing their commitment? Is a better word announcing they're going to break their animal welfare? Can you just change commitments midstream? I don't know. Anyway, to reflect a later deadline or even explain that they may never reach 100% cage free sourcing. Well, isn't that a shocker? So uh, the reasons that they give is supply. 
well, you know, if, if that's all they'll buy, that's what will be supplied to them. So that's really not the issue, is it? Like if, if, if all of the retailers got together, huge retailers like Walmart, uh, and said, no, they have to be cage-free, well, then that's what they would be. Conditional on consumer engagement. Well, that's a lot, a lot closer to the real reason that they find that people are not willing to pay more for for uh, cage-free eggs. Uh, and, you know, what should we take from that? We kind of knew that, like we've seen it before. When consumers have been offered the opportunity to vote for everybody being required to treat animals in a certain way, such as in Prop 12 and other ballot initiatives, they tend to vote for it. But when they are asked to to decide for themselves individually, will you spend more money for eggs knowing that the animals were better treated? Not, not none of them, but a lot of them say no. I mean, maybe they don't think that's going to, their individual choice is not going to have a huge impact on the industry, which they're kind of right about. It's not a vegan mentality, but we all know that's a, that's a very common mentality. So this is not particularly surprising. The fact is, what this is really revealing is that the the industry cannot afford to treat animals with anything other than the most horrific cruelty because they can't sell their products. The industry is completely non-viable unless it's using the most horrific cruelty imaginable, which I think anybody could agree the battery cage represents. So maybe this isn't particularly surprising, but it's another sad commentary on the state of the world. And finally, all right, this is one crazy story. This is all for, also from What Poultry. KFC, you're not going to believe this. <laughs> KFC Kristallnacht chicken promotion, a major misstep. I saw that headline and I thought, what? <laughs> what are they talking about? This is by one Elizabeth Doman. Apparently, KFC in Germany, no less, KFC Germany, put out this announcement. Uh, it's Memorial Day for Kristallnacht. Treat yourself with more tender cheese on your crispy chicken. Now at KF Cheese. I mean, I assume that you know, since most people do, what Kristallnacht was. It was, as this article points out, it was in 1938, and it was kind of the beginning of the Holocaust. And there were these huge, violent, anti-Jewish demonstrations across Germany, Austria, parts of Czechoslovakia, according to this article. I didn't know that. And and just a nightmare where people were killed. And it was called Kristallnacht because so many windows of Jewish businesses were, were smashed. And as this article points out, it was a turning point in the history of the Third Reich, which it's quoting the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum website. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. A terrible, terrible day in history. So, so are you now as perplexed as I am? All right, they, they, they basically blamed it on a bot. They said uh, it, it was semi-automated content creation process. Well, like they need to be, I don't know, like semi-automated. There Was there any human uh, content? They just listed Kristallnacht as another holiday? Uh, what? <laughs> I mean, if you actually support Kristallnacht, I have to say, if uh, if you're if you're a Nazi and you're out there, are you support Kristallnacht? Uh, contributing to the horrific cruelty to to chickens, maybe just the way you would enjoy celebrating. I don't know what happened here, but it's pretty crazy. And that's it for this week's rising anxieties. 
Well, that's it for this week's show. If you like the podcast, we're asking for your support as we kick off our end of year fundraising. We're excited to announce that if you contribute between now and December 31st, your donation will be tripled dollar for dollar up to $20,000. That means that with your donation, plus our barnyard benefactors and an added boost from an anonymous donor, we're hoping to raise $60,000 for the year end. This is the time where we do the vast majority of fundraising for our entire year. If you're not already part of the flock, we invite you to join for $10 a month or $100 a year. You'll get some really cool perks, including weekly bonus content, access to our private flock Facebook group, which will soon be upgraded into a brand new platform, and an invitation to our monthly Flock Friday Zoom meetings for fun and engaging conversations with me, Marianne, and others in the flock. You will also have an opportunity to meet with me for one-on-one sessions to discuss your veganism, your activism, or whatever's on your mind. Plus, if you donate $100 or more, I will send you a personalized video message to show you my undying love and gratitude. And brand new this year, if you donate $250 or more, you will get that plus a really cool Our Hen House pin. So if you appreciate Our Hen House, if you believe in our mission to effectively mainstream the movement to end the exploitation of animals, if you find community and solace in our shows and resources, and if you believe in the change-making power of indie media, please make a donation before December 31st and your donation will be tripled. Contributions of any amount are greatly appreciated. To support us today, visit ourhenhouse.org donate. That's ourhenhouse.org donate. Another great way to support us is to leave a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also like us on Facebook, where you can also leave us a review, or follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Our Hen House. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, to Vicki Beachler for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing this podcast, to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Veronica Kalinska, who designed our amazing logos and other graphics. We'll be back next week with a brand new show, so don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.